Uh, we're going to be in Genesis 22. You can open up to that text. We're going through the book of Genesis as a church, and now we're in chapter 22. So, Father, we are grateful that you gave your son for us. Jesus, we are amazed that you would leave paradise, heaven, become a man, walk, talk, eat, get hungry, be scourged, and crucified for us. And so we know that you are good, and what you do is good. And we pray for understanding in a difficult section of Scripture. So would you speak, and may we listen. We ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. So Genesis 22, uh, for me, the most difficult chapter in Genesis. More difficult to wrap my head around than the flood or to try to explain Sodom and Gomorrah. It's Genesis 22. It's in this chapter that, for me, I feel that great gulf between humans and God. That Isaiah 55-ness, that his ways are not our ways. As high as the heaven is above the earth, so high are his ways above our ways. It's in this chapter that I feel that. I feel like this. I'll try to explain it with this story. Um, three months ago, my family's all packed in our car and we're driving home and we hit the driveway before the drive, driveway to our house and it's gravel. And there's this nice kind of lawn that goes up to a pond. And we're driving and we see on the side of the driveway right there, a little fluff ball. Well, it turns out to be a Canadian gosling. So I get out, we get out, I kind of pick it up. Something's wrong with it. It's all like covered in wetness and one of its eyes won't open. It can't quite walk right. But up at that pond, there are these three Canadian goose families. So I said, hey, let's have a family reunion. So I grab it, and my kids get out, and we walk it up there, and I set it down. And right when I went up there, those three families just started to leave. They just walked away. I'm like, oh, okay. So we get back in the car, we go home. About two hours later, my kids are like, hey, I wonder what happened to that little gosling. We should go check it out. I'm like, okay, fine. So we walk down there. And we get there and we start walking up the hill. And as we're walking up the hill, those three families are coming back and we see the little gosling that's still in the spot that we had left it. And these three kind of families come up and I'm like, all right, what's well, gonna happen right here? So they get in the water and then that little gosling goes into the water and you can see it's a little bit like, hmm, should I go over there? And finally it decides to kind of swim over there. And then one of the parents, I can't tell if they're moms or dads, I don't know. I mean, it's a Canadian goose, I don't know a Canadian goose just attacks this little gosling. Starts like trying to drown it and stuff. And so Carissa, my oldest, who is an animal lover, had pulled up about that time. She saw it. She just went in the water and saved the thing. Like, get away. All right? So I'm like, oh no, I have five kids. I don't want a goose. But I ended up with a goose. So we took it home. And I have, at that time, a cage. We were raising some chickens. So, and they were little at this time. So I just put the gosling in that cage with my chickens. Well, um, Myron, my three-year-old, loves that gosling. Named it Lucy. Lucy the Goosey. So now we've got Lucy. I don't know if it's a boy or girl. 
could have some problems growing up, but it's named as Lucy. And for three weeks straight, that gosling would walk around that cage frantically trying to get out. You know, be, beaks all beat up from trying to get out through the little bars and just freaking out. Like, well, I don't want to be in here. So finally, after three weeks, I'm like, it's getting bigger. I thought, well, I'm just going to pull it out and see what it does. So I, so I get the goose out and it's just all mad at me. And I, I set it on the ground and it just runs straight up in the woods. And I thought, well, one day and you're dead. A raccoon's going to get you. So I chase after this duck and it's now, or this goose, and it's now running through the woods. I'm chasing this duck and like, it's just a headache. I'm like, come on. So finally I catch the, the goose and now it's biting me. Have you ever been bit by a goose? It's so pathetic. They have no teeth. I'm like, that tickles. You should try something else. So it's just like, ah, I'm like, whatever. So I put it back in the cage. Well, a week after that, uh, my kids say, hey, something's wrong with Lucy. I'm like, what do you mean? And they said, she can't walk. I'm like, she can't walk. So I go down there and, and look in the cage and sure enough, she won't walk. We pull her out of the cage. This time, instead of running away, she just sh- straight down. I'm like, well, she'll get better. Well, the next day she like can't quite even balance herself. So I thought, huh. So I did what anyone does at that point. I Googled it. Goose won't stand up. Goose won't walk. There's like 5 million hits. Like it's like one of the most popular searches. I'm like, what in the world? People are crazy, me included. So then the site I go to says, you got to shoot it. It's a genetic disorder. You have to call it and kill it. I'm like, ah, Myron will go crazy. I'll have to pay a lot of money when he's 20 for counseling. There has to be a solution to this. So I'm like, well, let's think here. So I got an old t-shirt and I cut these holes in it and I took Lucy out of the cage. She doesn't run from me now. And then I stuffed her legs to the holes I made in the t-shirt and she's mad at me, biting me again. I'm like, it's not working. You should figure that out by now, it's not working. So she's biting at me. I finally get her feet into the holes, put her head through the, the shirt sleeve. And then I hung the whole thing up so she had to stand up. And so she's just running around these circles trying to get away, but she can't get away because it's tied to this stick that's above her. So I did this for three days. At the third day, took that thing off and she like ran away from me and was like, I hate you. I'm like, yes, but you're walking. You're alive now, right? You're good. I'm not going to kill you. Now, Lucy, if you look down in my field, three months old, full grown Canadian goose. Now you'll see her down there with my goat and my goose right next to each other taking a nap. It's like the millennial kingdom. The lion will lie down with the lamb. The goose will lie down with the goat. It's so cute, right? But for a long time in Lucy's little life, she's like, this human is a horrible creature. He's putting me in this cage. He's forcing me in this t-shirt. I don't get it. I'm mad. And sometimes when it comes to God, I feel like Lucy in the cage. I don't get this. What are you doing, right? Well, Genesis 22 is one of those kind of texts where I just say, I don't understand this. I don't understand this text. So let's read it. After these things, tied to chapter 21, very important to me, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. 
the very first instance of a dad's love for a son is right here. And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering. Notice how slow this story is going. He cut, the, really you're gonna tell us he cut the wood? It's doing that for a reason. You're supposed to really slow down and think about this story and think about Abraham and put yourself in his position. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering. And he rose and he went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. And I and the boy will go over and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. And he said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And so they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of Yahweh called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, Yahweh will provide. As it is said to this day, on the Mount of Yahweh, it shall be provided. What a story. <laughs> There's some problems if you read this. And we know, verse one, it's a test. But Abraham does not know it's a test. To him, it's real life for five days, five grueling, brutal days. Put yourself in Abraham's sandals. How would you feel? How would you feel towards God? God here is asking for a human sacrifice. Abraham would know this, the Canaanite religions around there, that they, they practice human sacrifice all the time. So it would not be outside of the category that Abraham would have that God would require this because he doesn't have the rest of scripture that tells us God hates human sacrifice. He didn't have any of that. So he has no idea. Well, maybe God is like these other religions and that's what he requires. It's like right now, God is Abraham's worst enemy. What are you doing to me? Why are you doing this? You ever felt that way? 
circumstances of life, expectations, disease, depression, whatever it is. Like, why? So everyone that you read, all the commentaries, they want to try to figure out what's the deal with chapter 22. And they have these ideas that I don't necessarily agree with, but some of the ideas are this, that it was to test the strength of Abraham's faith. Doesn't God have other options in this? Seems like he would have a different option than this. They say that, that this is God's way of introducing himself to Isaac. That one, I just chuckled at. Like, really? You want that as your first impression? I think there's a better way to introduce yourself, God. I don't think that one's right. Others say it's to show off Abraham. That here's the, why, the reason I chose Abraham. Out of all the families of earth, this is why I chose Abraham. Look what he will do for me. Well, if you do that, you miss out on grace. You miss out on the beauty of the story of Abraham, which has real high points, no doubt, but also has deep valleys where Abraham greatly fails. You miss grace if you do that. Some say it's uh, because of a picture of a future sacrifice. Others say it's to show that actually God hates human sacrifice. I think God could just say that. Hey, I hate human sacrifice. Like he doesn't need this story. And the hardest problem of all is this. The text give us, gives us one reason why God does it. It's verse 12. The reason is, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. That has a bunch of problems in itself. What? God didn't know? What's, the deal? What, what's trying to be said right there? The one answer in the text is maybe the hardest one to actually work through. Soren Kierkegaard, who struggled with this story, and Soren Kierkegaard is both up and down. There's good stuff he says, and there's weird stuff he says. But he wrestled with this text, and he said, I don't get this. God asking a dad to murder his son. He believed Abraham should have said no, that that was the pass of the test. He should have said, no, I won't do that. That's how he answered this riddle. It's tough. There's a ton to do in it. Wednesday, air-conditioned room. We'll spend some more time in Genesis 22. But remember the purpose of Genesis is this. It's shaping a group of slaves who had just left Egypt with that worldview. It's trying to shape them into the people that can take the promised land. That's the reason why Genesis is here. And Genesis is revealing to them not only Abraham's faith and how he walked it out, but it's also revealing to them a theology of who God is. I think in Genesis, for me personally, the way that I walk this out right now, and it's still a mystery to me, I feel a lot like Lucy at times in this text, but I find in it, there's some theology that's now being revealed to the Israelites, to you and me, that are helping us clarify who Yahweh is. And I'll give you four, I hope, as long as it stays nice and cool. The four that I see in this text as I try to work through it on my own. So here's number one. It's this. This text is telling them, God is God unconditionally. Here's what I mean. If you look at the two calls of Abraham, there's chapter 12. Abraham, leave your land, leave your family, leave safety, leave everything you know. Go to a land that I'll show you. Abraham obeys and then God shows him the land. And then chapter 22, verse one. Hey, Abraham, take your son, go to a place that I will show you. It's obey me and then I'll show you the spot. It's not, I'll show you the spot. 
and then you can decide if you're gonna obey me or not, all right? There are no conditions. Abraham has to obey, and then the rest will be given to him. We rebel against this when it comes to God. Very often when we come to God, we put conditions on our faith, right? I'll believe in Jesus, but I'll never be a missionary to North Korea. There's a condition, right? I talk to skeptics and I love talking to skeptics. It's the best thing in the world for my faith. And very often when they talk to me, they will almost always put a condition on faith in Jesus. Okay, I'll believe in Jesus, but do I have to believe in this? Or I'll believe in Jesus, but he cannot tell me who I can or cannot have sex with. I will believe in Jesus, but he cannot tell me how to run my business. I'll believe in Jesus, but he can't tell me who or where to hang out with. I'll believe in Jesus, but he cannot tell me not to do fill in the blank, whatever my vice is. There was always like this condition that we want to bring to faith in Jesus. This text is saying, you don't get to do that. God is God. If God is, Genesis chapter one, creator, sustainer of the universe, owns it all, then guess what? When he says something, we obey. It's that simple. If God is God, then we obey. Practically applying that to my life, when I share Jesus with people, here's what happens too often when I'm sharing. We get sidetracked off Jesus into all the conditions. Well, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say about this? What does the Bible say, right? You get, instead of sharing Jesus, then you're talking about all these other things. Well, does God love President Trump? You know, how do we get on that? Just want to stick on Jesus? Like, right? Well, Jesus is the deep end because if Jesus is God and he is, then what he says goes. And if you don't believe Jesus is God, then none of it matters. None of these conditions matter. So I am more and more and more. When I'm talking to people, I just keep going to the deep end. Nah, nah, okay, that's right. Hey, what about Jesus? Let's stay in the deep end, right? Everything else is the kiddie pool. And when adults play in the kiddie pool, guess what happens? The police get called because it's weird, <laughs> right? And you hit, hit these unnaturally warm spots like, oh, ugh, I need a shower, right? Stick with Jesus because that's the only question that matters. Matthew chapter 16, who do men say that I am? That's the only question that matters. But often we just get sucked into this crazy condition thing. But God is God, number one, and he's showing it here. I'm God unconditionally. You don't put conditions on belief in me or obedience to me. That's number one, what I see. And it's teaching these freed slaves that idea. Number two, link to it, God is God, non-negotiably. Here's what I mean by that. Um, I went to the San Juans a week and a half ago. We were up there, beautiful, awesome. And what I did when we got together was in the morning, I just tried to read something from the Bible and then I'd ask a question. So the first question I asked, and it was just a question to kind of germinate on throughout the day. Then we talk about it that night around the campfire. So question number one I asked was this, who is God? Because what you believe about God is really important to your worldview. If you believe God is an ogre that's trying to get you, then you're going to run from him. In fact, you'll avoid sin to avoid him. So who is God? Big, broad question. And if I was to answer that to somebody that's a skeptic and does not believe in scripture, I would say that their God is this. This is my definition of, of a God outside of scripture. It's this. It's the one non-negotiable in your life. It's the one thing that you hold the highest. It's in the words of Gollum from Lord of the Rings, 
It's your precious, right? And you will fight and you will die and your quest will be to protect your precious, okay? So here's what I think. Wednesday night, we talked about this. I think Sarah, 70 years, she wants a kid. She can't have a kid. Disappointment after disappointment, month after month. No kid, no kid, no kid. Imagine that how many times she's disappointed in that, right? Finally, she gets a kid at 91. His name is Isaac. And chapter 21, verse seven just says, she is bursting with joy. I'm laughing, people are laughing with me. This is awesome, right? But then just two verses later, she is angry as all get up because her stepson Ishmael was teasing her son Isaac. A 14-year-old teasing a four-year-old. Has that ever happened in your home? Right, it's every day. Like, it's crazy, right? So she's like, get him out, kick him out. Man, if we did that at my home, I'd be living by myself. I'd kick the goose out because it teases me sometimes, right? I mean, that's crazy. She way overreacts. Why? Something got close to her precious. Little Isaac, oh, don't you dare. Don't you dare mess with Isaac. Look out, she explodes. I think very often you will know what your non-negotiable is when you explode over anyone pressing you or touching it. So someone touches Isaac and she just goes crazy. And I think personally, chapter 22 is necessary because of chapter 21, that God now is pressing Abraham and Sarah on this thing. They've elevated Isaac to the wrong position in life and it's gonna hurt them. Do we do the same thing? Do we have these things in life that we say, these are non-negotiables? And if we stopped having that one thing, there'd be no joy in life that we would be miserable people. When that happens, that thing of joy no longer becomes joy. It actually becomes a tyrant. It actually becomes jail to you. It limits you. Here's an example, um, goofy example, but I think it gets the message. A buddy of mine sent me an article. It was on the G20 summit that happened a month ago in Europe. Uh, the one that we can't seem to get over in the news cycle, just keeps coming up, talk after talk. Well, at that summit, they had this story about the Saudi king when the Saudi king travels, he requires fresh camel's milk wherever he goes. Non-negotiable. Guess what that means? Wherever the Saudi king goes, he needs to have some lactating camels with him. Imagine that for a second. What are the logistics in moving a camel from Saudi Arabia to wherever you're going? That's insanity to me. Do they put him on a plane? I mean, how do you transport them from the airport to the hotel? What hotel lets a camel in, right? It's crazy. I could see if it's a goat, piece of cake, right? Goats, you could, it'd actually be kind of cool. You'd be kind of a hipster, take the goat on the bus with you. You'd be like, hey, man, it's a, it's a companion animal, and I get milk from it. You want some milk in your coffee? Just psh, psh, little squirt right here. Be great. But a camel, man, you're not getting that thing on a bus. But now that they have that, guess what? It limits them. What if a country won't allow in a camel? You're not going there. So this thing that becomes their non-negotiable actually limits them. And the same thing is true of you and me. When we get to this kind of spot where, God, this is a non-negotiable. My safety, my comfort, money, my kid's success, being cool. Like, Jesus, don't you dare embarrass me. Do not make me share you with that person because that will embarrass me. Do not make me put that little fish on the back of my car because that will embarrass me. Then guess what? You are limited instead of being unleashed to all he has. So I think 21 makes 22 
necessary. And I will repeat this over and over and over again. Look out for good things that become God things. And it happens all the time. People do the thing with family. I met with a lady and she said this to me, if my son did that, it would kill me. I just say, listen, lady, you've given your son way too much power over you. Way too much power over you. He's 22 years old. He may do that and it won't kill you. But you are treating him now like a God. Be careful. Civilizations that elevate family above God, they get weird. Do you know that? When a daughter embarrasses a family in those cultures, they have what's called an honor killing where the brother will go search out that sister and kill them because things are out of joint. They're wrong, right? Jobs, jobs are good things. Work is a good thing, right? What about someone that takes her work too seriously? It's become the non-negotiable. What do we call them? Workaholics. And they hit ulcers and they're stressed out and often they lose their family and have no relationship with their kids. Why? Because they elevated something good to a God thing. It got too high on them. How about fitness today? Is fitness a good thing? Yes. Is fitness in America getting crazy? Oh my goodness. I go out to lunch with a guy. It looks like, I, I just asked him, dude, did you jog here? Because you look like you're jogging right now. Why do you have the tennis racket? I mean, really? Are you going to play tennis here at lunch? I mean, it's, it's crazy now. Fitness is good, but man, when it becomes a God thing, it gets weird. You got people taking drugs to get bigger. You got fit, uh, diet problems, all kinds of problems with dieting. Be careful. And they're great servants, but they're terrible masters. I can go over and over, on and on and on. That's why the psalmist says this. He says this about God. You are better than life. Whatever I think would be life, man, having that, having that kind of family, having that kind of job, living in that kind of house, whatever it is, going on that kind of a vacation, relocating from Grants Pass to Maui or to Merlin, whatever it is. If you say that's life, you got to remember, he is better than that. Jesus put it like this. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things would be added unto you. When you get God right, what happens is you live an ordered life. Everything is in its right spot. So here I think chapter 21, they were disordered and so God, chapter 22, is reordering them. Isaac cannot be your non-negotiable. It has to be me. Thirdly, God is not a grocery store. Here's what I mean. There are two main calls of Abraham, chapter 12 and chapter 22. There are similarities, but there's one massive difference. In chapter 12, God says this, hey, Abraham, leave family, leave Everything that you know, safety, comfort, job, security, inheritance, friends, leave that all. Go to a land that I will show you. Just go, obey me. And then God says, if you do this, I'm gonna bless you. I'll make you a blessing. I'm gonna give you this land. I'm gonna give you descendants, right? The Abrahamic covenant. It's obedience with reward. Chapter 22, God says, Abraham, yeah, take your son, your only son, Isaac, and slaughter him and there's no reward in it. It is obey me without any possibility of reward. In fact, it's the loss of everything that Abraham wants. And the question here is this, this is what God is getting at, I believe. Why are we in relationship, Abraham? Do you follow me and do you obey me 
because of what I will give you? Or do you follow me and obey me because of me? It's almost Job chapter one, where the Hasatan, his accusation against Job is what? Job follows you because you're a sugar daddy. Take that stuff away from him and he'll curse you, right? That's the same thing. The, the question is real simple. Job, why are you following me? Because there's no reward in this one. Why are you following me? Are you using me to get something else or is it about me? Is it for personal gain or is it because I'm your personal God? So God is really evaluating the relationship. Are you using me? You ever been used in a relationship? How does that make you feel? Someone's a friend with you because they want to date your sister. How does that make you feel? Someone likes you or is around you because they think you can get them a job or you're a stepping stone to better relationships, better people. And then when they're done with you, they just discard you and they don't even talk to you anymore. How's that make you feel? Like sacrificing somebody, right? It makes you angry. God here is evaluating, are you treating me like a grocery store? Is that why we're here? Okay. So Abraham obeys God because he's God, period. Why? Why do you follow Jesus? Is it because Jesus and his character and who he is? Or are you trying to use him? Are you trying to bang the God genie right so he'll drop the presents for you? Beware of that because here's what happens, I think, sometimes, actually when we present the gospel to people, that we'll tell people, hey, believe in Jesus and your wildest dreams will come true. And so they believe in Jesus and when their wildest dreams don't come true, guess what they do? Well, I'm out of here, man. This didn't work. I tried Jesus, it didn't work. No, you tried a genie and they never work. So I'm so careful now how I share. I follow Jesus. I believe in him, not because I went to a church and tried to get a girl, not because it's gonna make me cool or make me money or I think it's gonna be awesome. I believe in Jesus because it's true, period. And when life becomes inconvenient, or hard, or difficult, it doesn't change my following of Jesus because it's still true. That's why I follow Jesus. And so I present Jesus to people as the way, the truth, the life. Yeah, he does great things for me. But man, I follow him irregardless. God's not a grocery store. Abraham, are you willing to sacrifice everything with no option of reward? And Abraham obeys. It's amazing. Lastly, and I'm done. I'll be real short here. This is the Everest of this text for me. And it's God is provider. Look at verse 14. He's gonna sacrifice his son. He's interrupted by the angel of Yahweh. He sees a ram, sacrifices the lamb, it says, instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place Yahweh will provide. Jehovah Jireh, or if you pronounce Hebrew differently, Yahweh Yireh, God provides. As it is said to this day, on the mount of Yahweh, it shall be provided. A lamb substituted for a man. Anyone? Ring a bell anywhere and you're thinking about anything, <laughs> right? 
Martin Luther called this substitution, the great exchange, that Jesus, Jesus takes all of our brokenness. Jesus takes the meanness showed towards stepsons. Jesus takes me and my using of people for my own ambition or my own gratification, not treating them as the Imago Dei. Jesus takes my words that James 3 says actually fires hell itself. Jesus takes all of that in himself as a sacrifice and substitutes for me. Instead of me dying, I get life. 2 Corinthians 5.21 puts it like this. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God, the great exchange. There's no better exchange in the world. He takes all my junk and I get him in return. How brilliant is that? But it doesn't even stop there because he starts to recreate me. That same text says this, that old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new, that we are new creations in Christ Jesus. How brilliant is that? Romans 12 says that our minds become renewed, that we stop thinking like broken people, selfish, small, broken people. And we start thinking like Jesus people, living like him. 2 Corinthians 3.18 just puts it like this, that as we keep our eyes upon him, we are metamorphosized into that same image from glory to greater glory by the power of his spirit. He is the provider. How awesome is that? Provides forgiveness and redemption and atonement and adoption and hope and grace and new life and transformation. He's the one that provides that. What a brilliant, brilliant text. Lots of things I don't understand in this chapter, but I can understand that one. Jesus is our provider. And I don't know what you came in here with today. There's all kinds of brokenness and other people's brokenness affects me. My own brokenness hurts other people. But I know this, I don't know all your problems, but I know the one that provides the solution and it's Jesus Christ. He'll provide. That's his story. And it's brilliant when you see it from that viewpoint. And so maybe you're here today and maybe you need that new creation aspect. So in the summer times, we offer baptism every single Sunday. We don't try to press it down your throat. We believe God's spirit will draw those that should be baptized. Acts chapter two just says, repent and be baptized. You've had this certain kind of outlook on life, maybe and it was wrong. You've been treating people incorrectly. You've hurt people. We've all done that. The Bible says, change your mind about that way of living and start living like Jesus wants you to, seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness, knowing that he'll add all these things to you, trusting that he gives you righteousness. And when you go into these waters, that's what you're saying. I trust that, the great exchange. I go in broken, but I come out healed because Jesus provides. And so I'll pray. And there's a picnic at 11.30 if you wanna join us over there. If you need to be baptized, come on up and we'll baptize you and bring you in to the great provider of life and it more abundantly. And so Jesus, we're amazed at what you have provided for us. You are good and you always do what is good. And we by faith believe that even if we feel like Lucy, stuck in cages, 
not comprehending, we still trust you. Because if the father spared not his only son, but offered him up on our behalf, how shall he not with you give us all good things? And so we trust you, Jesus. And I pray that, Lord, any that have come in here with needs and brokenness, I pray that you would be their Yahweh Yireh, their Jehovah Jireh, the one who provides answers, direction, healing, motivation, freedom, forgiveness. So thank you that you provided that. May we walk in your providence. And I ask this in your name, amen. amen. God bless you guys.